Good morning. I'm finally uh, glad to be in the service. Is this working? Uh, glad to be in the service where I can preach an hour. This is that service, right? Derek? You are courageous people. Uh, before we get into text this morning, I just want to say uh, that I am excited to be here at Covenant. Uh, if you don't know, uh, I'm pretty much brand new. I've been here about a month. I'm the Director of Discipleship. My name is John Wasson. And I just want to express my gratitude on behalf of my family and myself. Abby and I have felt the, the, the warmth of your hospitality uh, in the last month. And we are very eager to follow Christ out into Austin with you. So very glad to be here. I'm also aware that I've just finished seminary. Pretty aware of that. Uh, and as Thomas joked a few weeks ago, what's, what's pretty much almost universally true about recent seminary graduates is that we think we have all of the answers. This is, all I have to say about that is that's unequivocally true. Uh, and I'm, I'm no exception to that. So, uh, however, I hope that together we can learn to maybe ask some questions that you can maybe teach me to learn some new questions um, together. So knowing this, though, about a young seminary graduate, young seminary graduates as fresh pastors, a friend of mine, a wise mentor, gave me a book by Helmut Tillich called An Exercise for Young Theologians, in which Tillich writes, there's a hiatus between the arena of the young theologian's actual spiritual growth and what he already knows intellectually about this arena. So to speak, he has been fitted like a country boy with britches that are too big, into which he must grow in the same way that someone who's confirmed must also grow into long trousers of the catechism. Meanwhile, they hang loosely around his body, and this ludicrous sight is, of course, not beautiful. I look forward to growing into my pastoral britches here <laughs> with you, and I'm humbled that you'd receive me in spite of how ludicrous it may all appear. Last week, the New Yorker published a listicle. Does everyone know what a listicle is? Okay, if you've ever been to BuzzFeed, you know what a listicle is, okay? It's an article that's essentially just a list. Sometimes it includes some pictures or gifts, sometimes it doesn't. So New Yorker published this listicle entitled, Everything I'm Afraid Might Happen If I Ask New Acquaintances to Get Coffee. I... Everyone feels that pretty, okay, deeply. Uh, so I thought I'd share a few with you this morning. Number one, they will say no. We've all been there. Number two, they will say no and laugh at me for not having enough existing friends to get coffee with. <laughs> Number three, they will not answer, and I'll be left waiting for their response for months unable to focus on anything else because I'm totally distracted imagining how they're going to say no. Number four, they'll say yes, but with a lack of enthusiasm just distinct enough that I'll know they don't really want to and are just too polite to decline, and then I'll feel vaguely guilty the whole time we're having coffee because it'll be clear that they'd rather not be there. Number five, they'll say yes, and we'll have a perfectly nice time and bond over what it's like being in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and working in creative fields and struggling to find fulfillment on a day-to-day -day basis, it will slowly grow dark outside. And as we share and laugh late into the evening, when we part, we'll agree that it was truly lovely time and that we'll definitely do dinner soon and then we will never speak again. There's a pattern developing here. Six, they'll think I invited them to coffee because I have a crush on them. Seven, I will develop a crush on them. 
hey, they'll say yes, and I'll look forward to our coffee date for weeks, and then on the planned day, I will be feeling tired, I'll not be a good conversationalist, and I'll hurt their feelings by seeming uninterested in them. Or number nine, my personal favorite, they'll want to talk about CrossFit. <laughs> Faced with the anxiety that accompanies building relationships with other people, I mean, is it any wonder that many of us stay home, binge watch on Netflix, looking for any excuse we can imagine to stay away from other people. It's way cooler to be casual, far more acceptable to come across like we don't need anything from anyone else. After all, this is, Amer this, this is America, but this is Texas. We are individuals here, which basically means that we are experts in avoiding authentic relationships with others. Consider this definition of individualism. An attempt to deny the reality of human interdependence. An attempt to deny the reality of human interdependence. One of the major values of the American experience, as you all probably know, is to be free from the necessity of relating to, submitting to, depending upon, or answering to one another, to other people. All summer long, James has been reminding us that Christians, as Christians, we don't have the so-called luxury of considering ourselves individuals. Christian faith, James has reminded us, depends on a relationship with God, which in turn generates obligations for each other. Obligations that James has reminded us that include obligations to the poor, to the marginalized, to the dispossessed, to the orphan, and to the widow. Faith, according to James, is active insofar as it is for others. It is a faith for other people. Our text for this morning is James 5, 1 through 6. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Gracious God, Speak now your liberating and reconciling word and give us the grace to hear it and obey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I first glanced at this text, the text that I will remind you that Thomas assigned to me, <laughs> my initial thought was, what is happening here? Um... I thought that Thomas was actually playing a cruel practical joke on me. Like I was expecting him to walk in my office and say, did you see the text? Yeah, it's fine. It's cool. I remember very clearly a seminary professor telling me, whatever you do, do not, do not preach about money, sex, or politics your first Sunday at your new church. <laughs> whatever you do. She said, think of, think of your first Sunday like Thanksgiving at your girlfriend's house. And you're eating there with her family for the first time. You've never met any of them. Think of your first Sunday like that. The Bible is a big book, John. Preach about God's love and forgiveness, God's grace. Whatever you do, stay away from money, sex, and politics. Well, 
James, on the other hand, doesn't seem too concerned with confronting uh, his audience, this church, about uh, confronting them with the sinful relationship between the rich and the poor. And I think, as we all know, as we've read James all summer long, James is kind of a rascal. I doubt that James would really mind that we're pretty unsettled by it this morning, that we're feeling uncomfortable this morning. After all, it's a common theme in his letter. He's already warned his readers to pay attention to the ways that, that material possessions, that wealth, kind of provide a, a false sense of security. And he's condemned the way that this church has shown favor to the rich over the poor, echoing Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount that it is the poor who inherit the kingdom of God. Here in our text this morning, James gets more specific. He's not worried so much about the wealth itself than with the way the, the wealthy have gathered this wealth. He says that they've actually stolen it. They've defrauded it from their, the people who are working for them. They've kept it back. Instead of using their money for the benefit of others, for the common good of all people, for their community, they've let it sit so much so that it's in danger of rusting. That doesn't, what? Silver and gold don't rust, do they? All while living in luxury. As a result, James says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by, by fraud, they cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. The relationship which James describes between the rich and the poor is a relationship of domination. The poor have no recourse. These laborers have no option. The wealthy are, are exercising arbitrary power over them. All they can do is cry out to God for salvation. Folks, domination is always and everywhere unjust. It's bad for those being dominated, and it's bad for the people dominating. This is hardly a scandalous sermon for Christians to hear. In fact, there are many outside of the Christian community that make the same argument using resources other than Holy Scripture. So we must look deeper if we're to make more of this text than a simple one-to-one -one solution for solving wealth inequality or raising the minimum wage. Those are issues that Christians should be concerned about. But here in this space, we're waiting for the word of the Lord. This is not my stump speech. Thomas Merton once paraphrased the, the Reformed theologian Karl Barth on Scripture by saying that when you begin to, to question the Bible, that the Bible is also questioning you. When you ask, what is this book? You start to realize that you are being implicitly asked, who is this that reads it? Sometimes we interpret Scripture, and sometimes Scripture interprets us. So I wonder, what does this text reveal about us? How is this text interpreting us? I don't know about you, but this text makes me really uncomfortable. Uh, it's been making me uncomfortable since Thomas walked into my office and gave it to me. And I think I figured out a few reasons why. First, John Calvin observes, this, uh, this text doesn't offer any issue uh, or any call to repentance. James doesn't say repent to this group of people. We're left wondering if there's any hope for this wealthy group of people who have dominated the poor. Of course, the good news revealed in this text is that God hears the cries of those who are being dominated and responds. That is good news. But I also wonder how God might save those who are trapped inside of a world they can't see out of as well. Caught in the thick of it. I think the wealthy represent these kind of people. And I have a hunch that maybe you and I do as well. Second, a couple weeks ago, I sat down with a group of high school students to read through this text, to invite their questions, to see how they might interpret it. 
Shout out, high schoolers. Yep, all right. Uh, really expected more there. Uh, I don't know why. You did great. Uh, one of the high school students courageously asked, I thought it was a really courageous uh, uh, question. He wondered aloud, I wonder what James would say about my life. I wonder what James would say about my life. This is an uncomfortable text because many of us in this room have a lot by way of resources. Many of us are indeed rich. We can try to weasel out of it as much as we can. I have tried uh, attempting to justify it. We can compare ourselves to other people. But deep down, we wonder, man, is James talking about me here? But I wonder if this text is primarily uncomfortable for us because we know that this kind of wealth that James condemns is the result of a version of individualism that we actually know all too well. Recall the definition of individualism I, I began with. An attempt to deny the reality of human interdependence. An attempt to deny the reality of human interdependence. The reason that the wealthy are able to hoard their resources, let their grain sour, their clothes get eaten by moths, which I have, I have literally no idea what that looks like. Uh, someone told me that that happens in Texas. Is that like true? Someone said my wool will get eaten by... I'm scared. Uh, but they, they're able to let their grain sour. They're able to let their money rust because they believe that they are free from the necessity to relate to others, depend on others, to answer to other people. This kind of inequitable relationship between the poor and the rich, in which the, the rich dominate the poor, is only imaginable in a culture that's marked by individualism, in which individualism's okay, it's the norm. That we are scandalized by such a text like this might be proof that perhaps unknowingly, we have come to believe the gospel of our Western culture to be true which elevates individual freedom as the highest good imaginable. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ attaches a question mark to that type of thinking. According to the gospel, individualism is not an advantage. It's a spiritual handicap. As individuals, we struggle to love God because we try to control God to, for our own ends. We just become haphazard consumers. As individuals, we struggle to love each other because the kind of love required by the gospel is love that generates mutual transformation, intimacy, vulnerability, where forgiveness might emerge and reconciliation might take place. I think that Frederick Buechner got it right when he said that the gospel is bad news before it is good news. It's the news that we're sinners, that we desire to be our own judge, that we desire to be self-determined individuals. That is what Beekner calls the tragedy of the gospel. Like other New Testament writers, James assumed that Jesus was coming back very soon, like within his lifetime. And that as a result, judgment day was fast approaching. He warns that the misery that awaits the rich is God's judgment. And he's right. But it turns out not to be the fire and brimstone judgment that we associate with the end of days. Turns out the judgment rendered to the rich is that they end up getting what they want. A self-determined life which only leads to misery and shame. The wealthy in this passage are only living in the tragedy of the gospel. And yet the good news of the gospel is that it is, at the same time, a comedy. Which means that even though we are sinners, phonies, self-declared, self-determined individuals, we're loved, we're forgiven, and we're invited to be covenant partners with God, to be a people that is in covenant with God. Knowing this about the good news, 
We might expect for James to offer an opportunity for the wealthy to repent, to stop living in the tragedy of the gospel, to live according to the comedy of the gospel. But he never does, which drives me crazy. It's been driving me crazy for weeks. James, offer an opportunity for repentance. Where's the good news, man? And then I wondered about the language that James uses here. James, this warning resembles the prophetic tradition. And if you remember that what the prophetic tradition was supposed to do, is it functioned to remind Israel of their true identity, to tell the true story about its covenant relationship with God, and to remind them uh, to stop being tempted by the stories that were being told about them in the culture in which they lived. They were often in exile. We need stories like these. Stories uh, to counter the stories we hear every day that glorify self-determined individualism. We need stories that put on display the spiritual bankruptcy of a life pursued after only our own interests. When I was young in my 20s, uh, like I I got some maturity now, so I'm 30. (laughs) In my early 20s, when my standard response to the question was, was, how are you? I'd say, I'm living the dream. I'm doing great. And I'm pretty sure I thought I was. Mind you, during this time, I just ended a relationship with the woman I thought I would marry. I'd moved to a new city in which I only knew a handful of people. I began a new graduate program of which I was pretty uncertain, and I was without any Christian community. Which is to say, I was not living the dream in any way. I was scared. I was lost. I was frantically trying to create an identity for myself, all on my own. But people believed me when I told them that I was living the dream. And I think partly because I was living with six guys in a house. You know, we didn't have any responsibility. We had to keep the pool clean, and we couldn't even keep the pool clean. (laughs) But people believed me. And during this time, I lacked the courage to invite anyone into that loneliness. And one of the reasons I think I lacked the courage is because I had not heard enough stories which put on display the spiritual bankruptcy of individualism. And I hadn't heard enough stories celebrating the kind of mutual, transforming relationships that the love generated by the gospel creates. I don't know about you, but I need to hear better stories. I still need to hear better stories. Which makes me wonder, what kind of story is covenant telling through its life together? What kind of story are we telling through our life together here? It's not likely that the culture of individualism is going anywhere anytime soon. It is deeply, deeply embedded in our institutions, in our practices, and even here, even in our faith. But maybe through our life together, here at Covenant, we can bear witness to the kind of life that God calls us to live with human beings. We can tell a better story. The story is already being told here, and I know that because I've heard bits and pieces of it as I was discerning um, to come here. And over the last month, I've sat down with many of you, and I've heard so many stories of transformation, of how you've depended on on each other, how you've reached out, how you've invited other people in, how you've not settled for the story of individualism. This week, some leaders from Covenant attended uh, the Global Leadership Summit put on by Willow Creek. We did it via satellite at Westlake Presbyterian Church. And one of the speakers there was Brene Brown. And I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown's work. She's written a a few books, uh, Daring Greatly, The Gifts of Imperfection. I think she's got a new book called Rising Strong. Uh, But Brene Brown has researched shame and vulnerability for the last 15 years. 
Her work is incredibly valuable to the church. And during, during her talk, she spoke about the power of stories to shape and form our relationships and our sense of self, our identities. These are both stories others tell about us. These are stories that we make up in our heads as we encounter other people. And one of the things that Brene said is that you cannot ignore the stories that are being told about you or the ones that you're telling. That when you ignore these stories, you get left out of writing the ending. You essentially lose your agency. You're not, you're not involved in the story, just a character. But she says that when we own the story, we get to write the ending. And maybe as Christians, it's not so much that we get to write the ending, but that we get to jump into a story that's already being told. The story has been told for a long time. Friends, if we're going to be a community of truly good news, if we're going to live in light of the comedy of the gospel, not the tragedy, we can't, ex- we can't ignore the story of individualism that's being told about us. But by acknowledging it, maybe we can begin to tell a better story, a story that is shaped by God's love to us in Jesus Christ, in which by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are counted among God's friends and we are able to return that love to God and to others. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come in these doors every Sunday. After hearing stories all week long, stories about who we are, stories that Tell us to live isolated, lonely. Telling us only to think about ourselves. Telling us that the problems of others are not our problems. Whispering to us that the reason some people are in poverty, oppressed, dispossessed, is through their own fault. God, allow the grace of the gospel to transform our minds. That we are connected to one another in deeply, deeply connected ways. That our actions affect each other. The love that you have called us to love others with is a love that requires mutual transformation. May we be a community that tells that story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.